black holes and ripples in space-time. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Scientists have observed more ripples in the fabric of space-time in the form of gravitational waves. The most recent discovery appears to be supermassive black holes on a collision course. We'll speak with a cosmologist about the discovery and what this means for our understanding of the universe. Then, delays could keep the crew of the Artemis II mission on the ground, the first time humans have made a trip to the moon in more than a half century. We'll check in on the crew's training ahead of the planned 2024 launch from Kennedy Space Center and the challenges of such a complex mission. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Scientists have observed a new type of gravitational wave, ripples in the fabric of space and time. It's an incredibly difficult phenomenon to hear, but new observations are uncovering new types of these cosmic rumbles, possibly caused by the collision of supermassive black holes. So what does it all mean, and what's causing these ripples? And should we be worried? Here to break it down is Jim Cooney, a cosmologist at the University of Central Florida and co-host of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Jim, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Brennan. Well, Jim, we have some uh, exciting news about gravitational waves, and I know we've talked about these phenomena before on the show, but let's just take a step back, a refresher. Uh, what the heck are gravitational waves? So gravitational waves are kind of ripples in space-time they were predicted by Einstein way back in the 19-teens sometime, and uh, were recently, in the, in the 2010s, finally actually discovered. So that's uh, uh, a, a phenomenal... I mean, Einstein wins again. <laughs> he, his track record is, is pretty good. It's <laughs> pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, but so, yeah, what, what ripples in space-time means here basically is, you know, that, that uh, space itself is kind of stretching, expanding, and, and condensing, and expanding and condensing, and the same thing with, with time. Not something you're going to notice in your everyday life, of course, because these stretches are very, 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 very tiny and subtle, which is why it took us till the 2010s to, to actually discover them. Uh, but, uh, but they're real nonetheless. So let's talk about the 2015 discovery because it is really fascinating. Um, how did that happen? And, and what did, what did scientists learn by making these first observations? Right. So that was, that was made with a, a, uh, uh, an instrument called LIGO, which is the, well, I don't know what it stands for. Well, I know what it stands for, but it doesn't matter. But it's basically an interferometer. So it's two very long arms, uh, each a few kilometers across. And we looked at how the length of those arms were changing as gravitational waves were passing through. So you know, two arms that were perpendicular to one another as the gravitational wave passes through, one of those arms gets a little bit bigger and then smaller, and the other arm doesn't. And we're comparing the lengths of those arms. And the truly remarkable thing is the arms were shortening by some fraction of the width of a proton. You know, this, this, you have two mirrors that are basically four kilometers apart and they get closer by, you know, one-tenth the width of a proton. And we detected them. And, and, you, and you say that, you know, this is something that Einstein uh, predicted almost, you know, 100 years ago or, or, or more than that. Um, why is this so important to, you know, our understanding of the cosmos and, and the work that kind of Einstein created? Like, what, what does this actually mean 
for cosmology. So, so, so not only is it, you know, yet another, you know, here Einstein was right kind of a thing. I mean, that's, and again, that's what science is about. It's about making predictions and then testing those predictions. And so here's a, a, a fundamental test of something that Einstein predicted and it was right. Uh, one reason it's really awesome and important is it, it's a new way to see the universe, right? Almost all of our information in astronomy comes in the form of light, you know, electromagnetic radiation. And that's great. That's been tremendously useful for us. But what if we had some other ways to see the universe? And so ripples in space-time is another way to kind of see the universe and see these, you know, we would never see these colliding black holes in electromagnetic radiation, in light, because they don't emit a lot of light when they're doing this thing. Uh, and they're very, very, very far away. But they do emit a lot of energy in gravitational waves. And so we're able to see these events now. See, I put see in quotation marks because, you know, we're seeing them in gravitational waves. But this is uh, a, a new window into the universe, uh, which is really exciting as an astronomer. Mm-hmm. It's bonkers that, that you know, I'm not going to include me in this either, but that, <laughs> that scientists are able to observe ripples in space time. Like, that is incredible. Like, that's that's bonkers. <laughs> and so so that brings us to the most most recent observation um, uh, that, that scientists just announced that they've discovered even more observations of these gravitational waves at a much larger scale. Um, Jim, bring us up to speed on, on what we've learned. Right. So, so, so the, the LIGO uh, observatories, and there's some other ones now uh, in Europe and Japan as well, they're fairly limited in the kinds of gravitational waves that they see. And when I say kinds, I basically mean the, the frequency of the gravitational waves. You have to have gravitational waves that are bouncing back and forth very, very quickly in order to see them with, that, uh, with those instruments that we used in 2015. Uh, this new project that's called Nanograv uh, is attempting, I say new, it's an oldish project, but it took a very long time to collect enough data to say, to say anything really cool, uh, is looking for gravitational waves that have much longer wavelengths or are much uh, lower frequencies. Um, you could never see these with LIGO, but uh, so these are things that have frequencies and it's kind of hidden in the name of that project, Nanograv, that have frequencies of nanohertz. So that means billionths of a wave per second which is a very low frequency long wavelength wave and so it's a very different kind of wave that we're seeing i say different kind they're still gravitational waves but it's a a, a very very different regime of the gravitational wave spectrum and 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 how were these observations made you said they're different these are these are nanohertz and we can't see them through ligo so how and we i say we collectively again how are these scientists able to see it yeah yeah yeah. Um, so this is a, this is a, just a supremely clever thing. So, so basically, we can't use instruments that we have on the ground to see these gravitational waves. But what we can do is kind of use bits of the universe itself as our instruments. So the, 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 the fundamental idea here is we use uh, things called pulsars. And uh, perhaps your listeners have uh, you know talked about pulsars or you've talked about pulsars before. Pulsars are basically the, the dead husks of uh, great big stars. They've collapsed down and become a thing we call a neutron star, and neutron stars tend to spit out radiation along their magnetic poles, uh, and as those neutron stars spin around, uh, sometimes that that uh, light that they're spewing out from their poles passes by us, and we see it. Uh, and because they spin very regularly, they pulse very regularly from our perspective. Uh, and we've, you know, we've discovered hundreds and hundreds of pulsars that are out there, and so what nanograv is, this this it's a project, you know, of a couple hundred scientists uh, using radio telescopes 
uh, all over the country, and we're now expanding, I think, into, into uh, Canada and Europe and stuff as well. But basically, they're looking for at pulsars, and they're specifically looking at 60 or 70 different pulsars. And the great thing about pulsars is they, as they spin around, they, they flash at us once every time they spin around, but they're ridiculously, uh, I don't know what the word is, consistent, I guess is the word I'm looking for. They spin around at a very, very regular rate. But if a gravitational wave is passing between us and them, the distance between us and those pulsars will increase and decrease and increase and decrease by a very tiny amount, which means that the timing of when we see the pulses from the pulsar will change ever so slightly. So we're basically using, you know, LIGO, those things used a, a path, you know, bouncing light between two mirrors four kilometers apart. Here we're talking about many light years, hundreds, thousands of light years apart. Uh, so we're using pulsar, pulsars as our, you know, kind of uh, uh, our, our instrument arms. And so that's a fantastic thing. But um, this project has taken a long time. You know, they, they started this project, I want to say, 15 years ago, uh, or, or, you know, started taking data for this project 15 years ago. And they have just now, in the last few weeks, made this big announcement that, hey, we have finally collected enough data that we can be confident that we are seeing gravitational waves. That's bonkers. Again, it's like it's like kind of listening to a. If you're listening to the ticking of a clock and those ticks get longer or shorter, you know something is something's awry. Right? It. Something's awry. In this, and the, the trouble is, of course, that there are lots of reasons why something could be awry, which is why it takes so long to, to you have because you have to make sure what you're seeing is gravitational waves and not some other weird. You know, there are some plenty of other weird reasons why the the neutron star would start spinning at different rates and things like this. So you have to. So that's why we don't just look at one pulsar. We look at dozens of pulsars. Uh, we say, okay, if this one pulsar has slowed down a little bit, are, do the other pulsars that are nearby also slow down a little bit? Uh, you know, only the pulsars in that direction slow down a little bit and not the other direction, because that's how it would be if you had uh, a gravitational wave coming from behind that region or something like that. So uh, that's really what it is. It's, it's not in this this new stuff, we're not seeing individual gravitational waves like we did with LIGO. We're seeing the kind of collective symphony of gravitational waves that fills the universe on these scales. And so it's, it's, it's hundreds, thousands, millions of individual gravitational waves all collecting together. And we're seeing that very, very hard to hear signal. I say hear, of course, it's not, they're not sound waves, but this very low signal. We finally dug it out of the data, uh, and we can be sure that there we're seeing this background of cosmological waves. Pretty awesome. It is absolutely incredible. And you know these these gravitational waves, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, are caused by you know black holes colliding, right? Um, I've got to like, what can we infer that is happening out there when these black holes collide? Because I didn't think it got any worse than black holes, Jim, and now now they're colliding. <laughs> what, what? So it turns out that um, <laughs> what is causing these gravitational waves that we're now seeing is we can't be a hundred percent sure, but we're we do still think it's it's black holes colliding. But black holes are a very different thing. If you were afraid earlier, if you were afraid in 2015 of black holes colliding, you should be really afraid now because these. <laughs> Uh, the things that are producing these gravitational waves that we're seeing now with nanograv are probably colliding supermassive black holes. So what we were seeing before was, you know, black holes that are 10 or 20 or 30 times the mass of the sun colliding. 
These things are, are black holes that are a million or a billion times the mass of the sun. Ah. Uh, and we're not necessarily seeing them as they collide. We're kind of seeing them in the years before they collide as they're spiraling around one another. Um, and anytime you're taking a really big mass and moving it around very quickly, that's when you make gravitational waves. And so probably the majority of the gravitational waves we're seeing uh, from na in nanograv are these supermassive black holes swirling around each other in their kind of death throes. And that's, uh, you know, two supermassive black holes colliding. That's that's a heck of a thing. Yeah, and, and just the fact that we are seeing evidence of this stuff is just absolutely incredible, as we've mentioned. I mean, what's next? This isn't just a, a one-off observation, right, Jim? I mean, can we expect more of these observations as, as these projects move forward? Yeah, so for nanograph specifically, there are kind of two things that they're going to do over, over the next handful of years. One is just the more data you collect, the more confident you are in your results. So they published a suite of four or five papers in, in the big uh, scientific journals over the past few weeks because they finally reached the point where they're pretty darn confident that, that this is what we're seeing. Uh, over the next few years, they're going to get more and more and more data. And more data just means it's easier to see the signal from the noise, right? So they're going to do a better job and be more confident. Uh, a second thing that they're going to do is eventually they're going to be able to dig out individual gravitational wave signals. So like I said, what they're hearing now is kind of this low din of this, the symphony of the of the the universe, eventually we're going to be able to pick out individual you know instruments or whatever from that symphony, and um, that takes that again takes a little bit more time and a little bit more data. But that in our lifetimes, in the next decade or something like that, is, is coming, which uh, is a pretty cool thing because then we'll be able to say, oh, there really was a you know we'll be able to say more about the collision or the the spiraling of the black holes and stuff like that, which is great because we we can't see these things in visible light a lot of times so we're opening new windows on our universe fantastic I'm, I'm super excited super exciting stuff uh jim cooney is a cosmologist at the university of central florida he's also the co-host of the podcast walk about the galaxy jim thanks so much for joining us absolutely thanks for having me brandon still to come checking in on artemis 2 the first mission to send humans to the moon since the apollo program that's ahead on are we there yet here on 90.7 wmfe news you're listening to Are We There Yet? Here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. Astronauts are heading back to the moon the first time in over half a century. The crew of Artemis II is training to fly to the moon and return safely. The mission could launch from Kennedy Space Center here in Florida as early as next year. But the program is facing delays. Here to talk about the status of the program and what's ahead for the crew is Laura Forsick, a space policy analyst and founder of the consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure. So, Laura, last time we spoke, uh, we discussed the crew, uh, the selection of the crew. Um, as discussed, this is an international crew. We've got three U.S. astronauts, one Canadian. It's diverse in gender and ethnicity. And now the crew is beginning its training for the mission, which launches as early as 2024. Uh, what can we expect they're going through uh, at this particular moment? If you remember from Artemis 1, that was a practice mission doing a very similar profile as Artemis 2, but without people. And so now NASA is taking that data from Artemis 1 mission and using it to train the crew for Artemis 2. And they're not going to land on the moon. That's for Artemis 3. But they are going to go around the moon, which is the is not something we've done for like 50 years for uh, half a century, we have not gone beyond low Earth orbit with people. 
And so this is something that we just have forgotten how to do in a lot of ways. I mean, new technology and with international partnerships and commercial partnerships, it's all going to come together so that this crew is going to train not to land on the moon again, but to go around and to do some really great science around the moon. And their mission in itself is going to build upon the training of the next mission, right? I mean, I've got to assume what they learn from from this kind of slingshot around the moon and back is is going to feed into what Artemis 3 will need to train for, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So Artemis 3 is not going to spend the entire time on the surface of the moon. They are going to go down as a quick sortie and then come back up. So a lot of the similar things that Artemis 2 crew is doing, so will the Artemis 3 and beyond crews. Um, it's also going to be preparation for the Gateway, which is a small space station that's going to be built around the moon. And so that is going to be sort of a hub for astronauts to, to live and stay and work around the moon when they're not working on the surface of the moon. And so Artemis 2's data is going to feed directly into the Gateway program as well. Um, just as you mentioned, this mission will not land on the moon, but it is still a key piece of the Artemis infrastructure, correct? I mean, can you explain how this fits into the big picture of Artemis? Well, you have to remember, we haven't done this again since um, the Apollo era. And in fact, if you remember back, you and I weren't alive then and many of the audience was not, but some won. Um, Ar- uh, Apollo 8, when they went around the moon for the first time and they were able to really see up close what they were planning to land on. And also the radiation environment is different, the communication structure, the time delay. It's, it's not that far to the moon, but it does uh, you know have some complications when it comes to people, uh, astronauts living a bit more remotely than what we're used to in low Earth orbit with the International Space Station. And so a lot of what we have learned with space stations around the Earth is going to tie into this extended mission to the moon with Artemis 2 and then all the other Artemis missions. But it is going to be a bit more self-sufficient for those astronauts. They're going to have to live and work a little bit farther from Earth than what we're used to. Mm -hmm. It's a little more self-sufficient and, as you mentioned, a bit more risky, right? I mean, this is the first time humans will leave low Earth orbit in more than a half century. There is risk involved. Um, Speaking of that risk, we talked with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson last week uh, about just that. Well, they know at NASA that we don't fly until we're ready. We're going to make it as safe as possible. But, you know, when you uh, defy the laws of gravity and you go into space, uh, uh, and especially when you go on a translunar injection and go 250,000 miles uh, from Earth, uh, there are certain inherent risks in that. So they're aware of the risk, but we try to make it as safe as possible. Laura, just how risky is this mission? Spaceflight is inherently risky, and this mission is going to be as safe as NASA can make it without it not existing, because when you go ahead and put humans on a rocket, it is going to be risky. And this will only be the second time that the space launch system, the SLS, and the Orion capsule have launched. The first time was Artemis 1. It was almost flawless. There were there were some technical difficulties, but it really went really well. Um, but this is only the second time for Artemis 2. And so it's a new rocket, a new technology. Um, a lot of the older technology integrated into this, but altogether the system is new. And they're also testing a lot of newer systems as well. I mean, 
life support, for example. Artemis One did not need a full life support system to have crew on board, but Artemis Two certainly does. And so there's risk uh, in the actual launch and, and um, landing back to Earth. There's risk in the maneuverability of this interesting orbit that's going around the moon. And of course, there's risk in every single detail of the complexities of this multi-day mission. You mentioned Artemis II was used to test a lot of those systems, at least the systems that were on board those systems. And I remember hearing from you know, mission managers and planners that they really pushed that mission to the limits, right? I mean, they, it was an extended mission. It went farther in orbit, farther on the backside of the moon than ever before. I mean, this is all just feeding into NASA's plans for Artemis II and its decision-making process and its risk assessments, right? Yes, absolutely. And there are components that you wouldn't think that need to be tested that really are fairly new, like new spacesuits, for example. We don't have those old Apollo suits that were quite bulky, and we've learned a lot since then. But even the spacesuits that they use on the International Space Station are quite old. They're, they're decades old, and they were meant for a certain body type. Whereas these newer spacesuits that are being developed by two commercial companies based on research that, data, that uh, NASA has done, it's going to need to be tested in space. And so these astronauts are going to test something as basic as spacesuits to make sure that when the Artemis three crew lands, that everything is perfect for their spacewalks on the surface of the moon. Laura, this mission is slated to launch in 2024. Um, as followers of spaceflight, we both know that there inevitably will be delays. Um, what, if anything, is slowing down this mission or could be a challenge in the very near future as NASA counts down to 2024. Yes, I don't believe many people think that this will actually launch by the end of 2024 as currently scheduled. It will probably be 2025. And there's always a lot of things that can factor into those delays. Um, we mentioned the newer technology. Um, SLS and Orion need to be put together and integrated and perfect before they put human beings on board. And that's really key, right? They wanted Artemis 1 to go off well, but Artemis 1 did not have people on board. And when there's crew, when there are astronauts, when there are lives at risk, NASA takes every precaution and makes sure everything is perfect. So I think that's probably the biggest risk cases. All of the components working together to make sure that this mission is safe before it flies. And not necessarily an impact on Artemis 2, but you mentioned spacesuits. Um, there's also the lander for Artemis 3, which is Starship. Um, are those progressing as planned? And could we see delays beyond Artemis 2? Yes. If, if people were watching the news when Starship was tested last, we know that that mission, that test flight did not go exactly as planned. But that is how SpaceX operates, where SpaceX likes to test its vehicles to its limits when it's conducting these iterative designs. And so we should expect that Space uh, Starship will take a bit longer. And this is the a prototype of Starship. They still need to modify it to land on the surface of the moon and then bring astronauts safely back. And that is the kind of thing that will absolutely delay the program, but it's only one of many things that will delay the program. Um, there's a lot of components that uh, are awaiting testing, that are um, taking longer than expected, that have setbacks. Um, and so this is all perfectly normal. And so don't think that it's a catastrophe. We are all expecting them to be setbacks, and we are expecting that they will launch when they're ready. I mean, as you mentioned, this is a brand new system with with brand new pieces of technology and systems being integrated all at once. So this is to be expected with a new rocket system. Um, but delays, nonetheless, are, are always a bit disappointing. Um, but let's talk about something 
uh, exciting about Artemis. Um, India is the latest country to sign the Artemis Accords. First of all, what are the Artemis Accords and, and why are these kind of diplomatic partnerships uh, so important in, in the overall health of this program? The Artemis Accords is a multilateral, non-binding treaty between now 27 countries with the United States as the leader. And it is a, a combination of norms, a, a collection of norms that says that this is how we're going to operate responsibly in space. The last major treaty that was signed internationally was the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. There have been smaller treaties since then, but that was the last major one. That was so long ago. And so the Artemis Accords is not a full binding treaty, but it is a way for the international community to come together under the leadership of the United States to say, this is how we are going to be responsible, not just with the Artemis program, as the name suggests, but also uh, with space debris and other types of behavior in space. And it is also a bit of a geopolitical uh, competition where China also has its norms that it is developing with allies such as Russia. And so there's a bit of a uh, competition there where some countries are actually signing on to both the Artemis Accords and the norms that China is developing. But um, generally speaking, the United States wants to be that leader. And so um, it was uh, Ecuador and India that signed uh, pretty much back to back. And, and India is becoming a really strong player in space. So um, that was a big, big, uh, that was a big deal. <laughs> India was not necessarily expected to sign on to the Artemis Accords, but they did. And now they're saying that, that they back those rules and guidelines that the United States is saying that should be, uh, you know, the international norm for how to behave in space. And, and finally, Laura, anytime we talk about a big space program like this, I mean, you have the diplomatic buy-in, but you also need public support to help get funding for this thing. Um, last time we talked, public support was quite high. We were coming off the heels of Artemis One. We had the announcement of the crew. Um, is that excitement sustainable through this mission? And, and is this a difficult, I hate to use the pun, heavy lift for for NASA and 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 these other Artemis Accord countries to continue this? Um, public support when missions are so far apart from one another. Yeah, I think that might be the biggest challenge. The Apollo program did have uh, missions that were closer together, and there was that geopolitical component that was stronger back then with that competition of the Soviet Union. Whereas right now, there's just a lot of uh, you know things going on that take away from public attention. And so I don't think most people in the general public even are aware of Artemis. Maybe the Central Florida audience is a much more aware than the rest of America. But generally speaking, I think people will start paying attention more when there are humans on board. Um, and especially that Artemis 3 mission when we land back on the surface of the moon for the first time since 1972. That, that's going to be a major uh, boost in the Artemis's attention with the public and and hopefully with the uh, positive attention, you know, the praise. Um, but that is something that was a struggle for Apollo was keeping that attention throughout the rest of the Apollo missions. And I think NASA is going to have to learn the lessons of history to figure out how to keep that public support throughout the Artemis program. We've been speaking with Laura Forsick, a space policy analyst and founder of the space consulting firm Astrolytical. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to be on. Thanks so much. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
we got more space coverage online. Visit WMFE.org space. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Marion Summerall. Welcome, Marion. Our intern is Amy Diaz and editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.